You ready? Okay, so we're in Isaiah chapter 62. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 1. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness and all kings thy glory. Thou shalt be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. But thou shalt be called Hepzibah, and thy land Beulah, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day nor night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence, and give him no rest till he establish, until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. The Lord hath sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength, surely I will no more give thy corn to be meat for thine enemies, and the sons of the stranger shall not drink thy wine for, thy, for the which thou hast labored. But they that have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and they that have brought it together shall drink it in the courts of my holiness. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare ye the way of the people. Cast up, cast up the highway. Gather out the stones. Lift up a standard for the people. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world. Say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And thou shalt be called sought out a city not forsaken. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we thank thee tonight for, again, just the joy of our salvation, for the knowledge of Christ. And we pray, Father, today as we open up the word of God, that you would open up our hearts and minds to receive it and to understand it and to understand it with clarity. Help me, Lord, to be a good teacher of it. Help me, Father, to relay that which I have picked up in my study. And I pray, Father, that you'd help me to be clear about this passage so that each and every one might be able to follow along and to gather the truth of your word in their hearts and to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as Isaiah chapter 60 spoke of the millennial blessings to the land of Israel, and chapter 61 speaks of the one who will bring those blessings, chapter 62 continues along the same vein. The speaker is still the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And the emphasis here is upon the promises of God as contained within the Abrahamic and in particular the Davidic covenants. So chapter 62 is really a petition from God the Son to God the Father asking that he honors and implements the promises of his word to the Jew. Now notice in verses 1 to 7 how the promise 
is, or how the prayer, sorry, is relayed. He says in verse 1, For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. Now, I've just said to you already that the speaker here is the Lord Jesus Christ, and this being a continuation from the previous chapter. And of course, we know the Lord Jesus, and we know that he is absolutely committed to the will of his Father. So in the Old Testament, God made certain and sure promises to the Jewish people and for the land of Israel. And of course, we speak often on these Wednesday evenings in our midweek meetings, and even on Sundays, we speak often of the Abrahamic covenant, which is so important in our understanding of Scripture. But tonight, our emphasis is not so much upon that covenant as upon the Davidic covenant, which is indicated by the reference to Zion and to Jerusalem in verse 1. It's for Zion's sake, it's for Jerusalem's sake. And the Davidic covenant focuses upon the city of Jerusalem. Look with me in 1 Chronicles chapter 17 for a moment, and let's have a read of that covenant as it is relayed in this book of the Bible. 1 Chronicles chapter 17, and let's begin reading in verse 7. 1 Chronicles 17 and 7. Now therefore, thus shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote, even from following the sheep, that thou shouldest be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with thee, whithersoever thou hast walked, and have cut off all thine enemies from before thee, and have made thee a name like the name of the great men that are in the earth. Also I will ordain a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, and they shall dwell in their place, and shall be moved no more. Now we know that they, in history, they have been moved. They were moved during the uh, Babylonian uh, incursion and the Assyrian incursions uh, and the captivities. They were moved following the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus and the fall of the temple in the Roman era. But we know there's coming a time when they will dwell in their place and shall be moved no more. Neither shall the children of the wickedness waste them any more as at the beginning. And since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, moreover I will subdue all thine enemies. Furthermore I tell thee that the Lord will build thee an house. And it shall come to pass when thy days be expired that thou must go to be with thy fathers that I will raise up thy seed after thee which shall be of thy sons. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me an house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my mercy away from him, as I took it from him that was before thee. But I will settle him in mine house, and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forevermore. Now obviously in short term, that has some degree of reference to King Solomon, but in long term, it's a reference to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and to the establishment of his millennial reign. So simply stated, the Lord Jesus in Isaiah chapter 62 simply refuses to rest 
until such a time as the covenants of God and the promises to, to Israel are fulfilled and the nation is secure and safe in the land and resting there in peace. As E.J. Young says, for their sake, God will continue active until his salvation is accomplished. He has made covenantal promises to Zion. Hence, he will see those promises fulfilled. Now, those promises literally relate to the city of Jerusalem, to make Jerusalem a holy city someday, to restore and to revive the nation of Israel, and to see that it is a nation characterized by the true righteousness that is in Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus is praying for this. Now, that's what we're finding here in Isaiah chapter 62. The Lord Jesus is interceding for Israel. And he is praying that his father implement those promises. And actually, anyone who prays for the peace of Jerusalem is doing the same thing. In fact, many people inadvertently are praying for this when they recite the Lord's Prayer and they say, Thy kingdom come. You're praying the same thing. You're praying for Israel to be established in the land. You're praying for them to be uh, regenerated and revived. And you're praying for them uh, to have the Lord Jesus ruling and reigning over them from the city of Jerusalem, seated upon David's throne. Now notice he's praying for their righteousness to be witnessed in the world uh, for a testimony that will be self-evident. Look there in verse one again. He's praying until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth, and the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. So here we see that Gentiles are going to discover a very different Israel in the millennial period. Uh, they're going to uh, see a very different people from the people who are on show today in Israel. Today, the Jews are back in the land, but they're back in the land in unbelief. But in that day, they shall be in the land acknowledging Jesus Christ as their Messiah and as their Lord. So here's proof again that he is speaking about a future time. For when Jesus comes again, all the world's political leaders, we're told here, will honor Israel, will rejoice in her glory, and they will come to her, as we've read in the previous chapters. Well, we know, you know, you know, everybody knows, today the world's leaders see Israel as a problem to be solved. You know, Israel's hardly mentioned without the phrase, the Middle East crisis being attached alongside the name of the country. And so Israel is seen not just as a problem to be solved, but in some places as a problem to be eliminated. There are those who question her right to exist, and there are those who endeavor to present her as a rogue nation. 
I was watching the ITN news the other night. Sometimes we're always on to the BBC, but actually the ITN's just as bad as the BBC and the Sky's just as bad as, that, as, as both of those. And I was watching the ITN news the other night and their headline was on the Israel-Gaza war that's just passed. And I thought, first of all, it's very interesting they put Israel first in that title. It's not the Gaza-Israel war, it's the Israel-Gaza war, as though Israel was the aggressor in this war. And so then they went on and they showed the destruction that ensued in the city of Gaza as Israel defended herself from the rockets that Hamas were, uh, were firing down upon her. And of course, they, there was heart, in fact, there was no mention to Hamas in this particular news article at all. It was all about Israel. It was about the bombing of Gaza. It was about the death of 66 children in Gaza. And uh, we were then treated to, uh, to a view of some of those children and, and, uh, you know, and all of that. And there was no discussion about why this war happened, who fired first, who was the aggressor, who was the one that wanted to eliminate the other. None of that was discussed. And at the end of this, of this very one-sided and, and very heavily biased news article, they give you a link in which you could go onto the internet and you could meet all 66 children who died and find, about, find all, out all about their family and their upbringing and their name and their interests. And all of this is playing on the emotions of the readers. And all of it is designed to say to you that Israel is a nation guilty of war crimes. Interestingly, when the Hamas terrorists were firing missiles into Israel, they did kill one child, a 16-year-old girl, who was an Arab living in Israel, but she doesn't get a mention. She's completely ignored. And you can see the one-sidedness of it. And that's the typical response of the world toward the nation of Israel. But there will come a day when that is going to be completely turned around and the nation of Israel will be honored among the nations as a righteous nation. And to mark this conversion, notice in verse 2, the Lord is going to give them a new name. Several new names, actually. You know, it's interesting. In the Old Testament, a, name is, a new name is often given to reflect a change of status or a change of character. So you think about Abram became Abraham. Sarai became Sarah. And, of course, Jacob became uh, Israel. And so, uh, new names indicate new stature, indicate new character. In fact, even in the church age, we find there are those who are given new names. Look in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, where we're looking at the historical part of the book, or the book that was at least present in the present of uh, time of John as he was writing. He's addressing the seven churches of Asia, which were existent at that time. And uh, in verse 17 of this uh, chapter, where he's speaking to the church at Pergamos, he says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and a stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. In uh, chapter 3 and verse 12, we read there, 
concerning the church at uh, Philadelphia. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall no more go out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. Remember, uh, Peter was given a new name. That is his new name. Uh, Paul was Saul before he was Paul. And, uh, you know, it may well be that you have a new name written down in glory. We don't know what that name is yet. But uh, you might find that when we get to heaven that uh, you actually have a different name altogether that's indicative of your new character or indicative of your status in some way. A name by which God knows us. Not the name our parents gave us, but a name which the Lord has given us. Now, why a new name for Jerusalem? Why a new name? Because, as I say, it's a change of status, a change of character. But you think about this also. When does a person usually receive a new name? When they get married. When you get married, you get a new name. You get a new status, don't you? You go from being single to married, and you get a new name because the wife, the bride, usually adopts a new identity, and she assumes the name of her husband, traditionally. Now, this is precisely what is on view here, because we're going to see that the Lord is going to marry Israel. All right, and uh, as for Jerusalem, there are several new names on view for her, even in this chapter. Verse 4, she's called Hepzibah, my delight is in her. Beulah, which means married. And at the very tail end, she has another name. Verse 12, she shall be called Sought Out, a city not forsaken. In Ezekiel 48 and 35, once the Lord actually comes and he's been ruling and he's reigning in Jerusalem, the city is given another new name, Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is there. So these new names are all really important and very telling about their relationship with the Lord. So the Lord is praying for Jerusalem. He's praying for the peace of Jerusalem. He's praying for the salvation of the Jew. And not only does the Lord pray for her salvation and for her ensuing testimony, but he prays for her exaltation as a city. Look in verse 3. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. And there are two different words here that are used to, to be translated with the word hand. In the first instance, the hand of God is viewed as, as a mighty hand, a hand that is working on behalf of Israel. And in the second instance, the hand is a hand of display. It is showing something. Uh, it is showing a jewel. It's presenting something of beauty for others to view. So in the first instance, God is coming in powerful with his mighty hand on behalf of Jerusalem and Israel. In the second instance, having accomplished his purposes, he displays her in all her beauty. Then in verses 4 and 5, we find there's a prayer seeking her joy. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, Neither shall thy land be that any more be termed desolate, but thou shalt be called Hepzibah, and thy land Beulah, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and, it, and thy land shall be married. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. So no longer a land forsaken, no longer a desolate place, but a land that is owned and possessed 
That's what the word married in this verse indicates. When it says at the end of the verse, thy land shall be married, the word married there means owned. Do you ever think about that as a married person? That your husband owns you? Now, <laughs> William took his life in his hands there and tried to implement that with Arian. It's not going well. Uh, anyway, um, but, but seriously, you know, in our culture, that idea of owning someone, well, it's kind of unacceptable, isn't it? And yet, the fact of the matter is, I do refer to Hazel as my wife. That's a possessive pronoun. She refers to me as my husband. That's a possessive pronoun. And uh, you get into the book of Corinthians, the Bible says that the, the wife has no power over her own body but the husband, and the husband no power over his but the wife. So there is ownership in marriage, however much the culture might kick against that and balk against that. There is a sense of possession. And so this was all the more uh, pointed and all the more uh, evident or, 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 or magnified in ancient times. Uh, you know, in ancient times, really, uh, not to be married was to be considered unwanted. If a woman was not married, she was deemed to be unwanted. And that was not a happy place for most women to be. You know, we used to use the term spinster. You know, it's kind of funny when you're filling in the marriage forms, they ask you for the status of the bride. And, uh, you know, in days gone by, uh, pastors would have written spinster if she was a single woman. Now you just write single because spinster had a ramification to it. It had a, a social taboo eventually. It became something unacceptable. And the same with the idea of people might say to a single person, you know, you've been left on the shelf. We would never use those phrases today, but those were phrases that were used not so very long ago. They're very unfortunate in the way that they're termed. But the reality is that in ancient times, for a woman to be unmarried, she felt unwanted. She felt like she had been left behind, that she was left on the shelf. And so with the, with the prospect of Babylonian, Babylonian captivity looming before them, Judah had felt unwanted by God. They had felt forsaken and abandoned by God. Remember this, chapter 49, verse 14. Chapter 49, verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. In uh, chapter 54 and verse 1, Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Break, on to, break forth into singing, cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife. In uh, chapter 54 again, in verse 6, For the Lord hath called thee, uh, hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, a wife of youth, when thou wast refused, saith thy God. So you get that picture that when God says, no longer are you forsaken, no longer are you desolate, now you are Hepzibah, my delight is in you, and now you are Beulah, you are married to me. I own you. You can no longer say, I wasn't wanted. I will want you. I will prove that I will want you by possessing you in the end. Now, just as the Christian in this dispensation is as part of the church, the bride of Christ, 
Believing Israel will ultimately be restored as the wife of Jehovah. And verse 5 reflects that truth in two halves. The first half refers to the marriage and the second half refers to the honeymoon. And here the bridegroom is seen as rejoicing over his bride and God is seen as rejoicing over Jerusalem and over Israel. And uh, you know that the only place in the Bible that God is said to sing is in that little prophecy toward the end of the Old Testament, the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, and verse 17, where we read this, The Lord thy God is in the midst of thee is mighty, speaking of Jerusalem. He will save, he will rejoice over thee with joy, he will rest in his love, he will joy over thee with singing. The only place the Lord has said the same. Now, not only is the Lord in verses 6 and 7, he says, I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace, day nor night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence. And give him no rest till he establish, until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Now, who are these watchmen upon the walls of Jerusalem? Well, they can't be literal watchmen. You say, well, why can't they be literal watchmen? Because they're about to be invaded by Babylon. The Nebuchadnezzar and his army are going to come, and they're going to demolish the walls. Of Jerusalem. They're going to tear down the temple. There will be no place for watchmen by the time they have finished. But notice these watchmen are those who never hold their peace and who make mention of the Lord. These are God's people. These are the prayer warriors who are praying for the redemption of Israel, for their restoration in the land, and for the establishment of Jerusalem as the seat of divine rule. And notice they're told, keep not silence. Keep praying, the Lord Jesus says. You stick out, you keep praying, even as I'm doing. They're told to give God no rest. Now, it's not that they can wear God down. We can't wear God down. God cannot be wearied by human activity. But the idea is that you just never give up. You know, uh, we've been had the joy of having... Max and Henry living with us for the last seven weeks, and Max doesn't know very many words, but he does know the word granddad, and so he says it a lot. And he stands beside me, and he was doing it tonight. <laughs> he was standing in the hall going, Granda, and he went, What? Granda, what? Granda, what? Granda, 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 what, Max? Granda, what do you want, Max? Nan, Nanny, Nan, Nanny. None. And so he continues, oh, it's, very, it's very aggravating. He doesn't know very many words, but he uses them you know, uh, profusely. But uh, the, you know, the idea there is that he's, he's just going on and on and on and on. He's sticking at it. He, ref, you know, he refuses to be worn down. No matter what tone you speak to him in, while you speak to him kindly to begin with, yes, Max, or what, Max? <laughs> he still carries on, Granda. Granda, 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 granda. And you get no rest. Well, that's the picture here in a sense that we stick at it. Now, the idea is that we're going to remind God 
of his promises continually. Not that God needs reminded. He's anything but forgetful. He's absolutely faithful. But this passage is actually drawing upon a custom of the day in which kings appointed recorders to write down the things that they said and then to remind them of those things so that they could implement those decrees. So you would have recorders who would follow the king and if the king said, I'm going to do this, they would write that down. If the king didn't do it, they would come and say, your majesty, you said you were going to do X, Y, Z. Uh, and then if he still didn't do it, they'd come back another day and say, your majesty, you're supposed to be doing X, Y, Z. And so it would continue. And so the Lord takes something familiar to teach a truth here. He takes a familiar practice in which he speaks about giving the Lord God as king no rest and reminding him consistently of the promises that he has made. Not because he forgets his promises, but because we forget his promises. So the Lord says, don't give up on it. Don't keep silence. Stick at it. So there's the prayer as it was relayed. And in verses 8 through 12, we see the promises reiterated. Let's read those verses again. The Lord hath sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength, surely I will give no more thy corn to be meat for thine enemies, and the sons of the stranger shall not drink thy wine for the which thou hast labored. But they that have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord. And they that have brought it together shall drink it in the courts of my holiness. Go through, go through the gates, prepare you the way of the people, cast up, cast up the highway, gather out the stones, lift up a standard for the people. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world, say ye to the daughter of Zion, behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him. And his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people. The redeemed of the Lord. And thou shalt be called sought out. A city not forsaken. So in verses 8 through 12. We have the response of the father to the prayer of the son. Now everything you need to know about the certainty of Israel's future. Is contained in the first four words of verse 8. The Lord hath sworn. That's all you need to know. You know, people can get into all kinds of theological mind games and try to twist and turn the scriptures and make Israel the church and the church Israel and take, take the promises of God and apply them to ourselves. No, wait a minute. The Lord hath sworn. That's it. In simplicity. The Lord hath sworn. That's what it comes down to. This is not about the character of the Jew. It's not about the history of Israel. It matters not that the nation was a great failure in terms of keeping the law. None of that is of any consequence. All that matters is that the future of Israel rests securely upon the promises of God and that the Lord hath sworn. He swore unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, and he swore unto David. Listen to that, that oath that he made in Psalm 89. He says, My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon, and as a faithful witness 
in heaven. Psalm 89, 34 to 37. So we see that he has sworn. The Lord hath sworn, we're told, by his right hand and by the arm of his strength, both of which are symbols of his power. And uh, it isn't military power that's going to keep Israel in that locality. It isn't political power that they're relying upon. It's the power of God. It's the decree of God that Israel should exist as a nation at the end of time. And having been returned to the land and keeping with the uh, parable of the fig tree, they are there to stay. Listen to what the Lord then says in verses 8 and 9. Surely I will no more give thy corn to be meat for thine enemies, and the sons of the stranger shall not drink thy wine for the which thou hast labored, but they that have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and they that have brought it together shall drink it in the courts of my holiness. Now one of the ongoing and common experiences of ancient Israelites was to have foreign nations invade the land and steal their crops. That was a regular occurrence. Let's look at an example of that in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. It says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them. And they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come unto, notice, Gaza, and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass. For they came up with their cattle and their tents, and they came as grasshoppers for multitude, for both they and their camels were without number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. Now that has pretty well been, you know, just common fare for the nation of Israel throughout its history. Uh, even in recent times, you think about it, Israel has been, has been permitted by their government uh, to settle in certain parts of the land. And then later on, the government makes agreements with the uh, Palestinians and the people who have spent time and effort and money building up communities and towns and beautiful homes with all of the infrastructure that that involves are forced by their own government to withdraw from those homes and leave those homes for use by the Palestinians. But Isaiah says that this is not going to happen anymore. He says the things you plant you're going to eat. He says, you're going to drink your own wine. Nobody's going to take from you anymore. Rather than being robbed of your assets, you will enjoy the fruit of your own labor. They will gather around their tables and there praise the Lord and they shall drink freely in the courts of his holiness. You know, if you remember back to our series on the Millennial Temple, and if you can picture that uh, plan of the temple that I presented to you, remember there were dining rooms all the way around the uh, perimeter of the outer court of the temple and those uh, areas in which 
uh, worshippers will come and they will eat and they will drink and they will praise the Lord. And so that's indic indicated there by the idea that they would uh, praise him and drink freely in the courts of his holiness. W.E. Vine says this in verse 9, and I think this is a great application. He says, forcibly, this reminds us that for all which the Lord bestows upon us by way of material benefits, such as food and raiment, we should be in the habit of praising him day by day. Our thanks at mealtimes should never become formal. It should be given out of a heart that recognizes the goodness of God. The food we eat is sanctified by the word of God and prayer, referencing 1 Timothy 4 and 5. Now in verse 10, the people are invited to possess their possession, as though the restoration of the city was already a done deal. The Lord says, go through, go through the gates. Head into the city. You know, this is what's going to happen when he comes. He's sending his angels out into the four corners of the earth to gather the Jews, to bring them back to the land. And the Gentiles are going to facilitate them by land and sea and air, as we've seen already in this book. And they're going to be told, go on, go through the gates. Get into the city. It's yours. And when you read that verse, go through the, go, go through the, go through the gates, prepare you the way of the people. The word people there is singular. It's speaking of a particular people of Israel. But when it goes on and says, cast up, cast up the highway, gather out the stones, lift up a standard for the people. The second people is plural. It's speaking of the nations for the peoples. So what happens is the Jew comes into the city at the reign of Christ and they lift up a standard. What is a standard? A standard is a flag around which others draw. And remember, the Gentiles are going to be drawn to Jerusalem at this moment in future history. And so the peoples will come. A highway shall be built. Cast up the stones. Build a highway. Build a motorway. Get them there as fast as you can. And finally, in verse 11, the Lord makes a proclamation to all the earth, to the end of the world. Now, that's not an eschatological end of the world, but it means to the far reaches of the planet. He wants us to proclaim that for the Jew, thy, or to the Jew, thy salvation cometh. Notice that salvation is personified. Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him. Speaking of Christ. That's what the name Yeshua means, salvation. Remember, Jacob said, I have seen thy salvation Oh God, I have seen Jesus in uh, Genesis 49. So does that sound familiar to you? Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him. Look in Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. Verse 12. The Lord says, And behold, I come quickly. And my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Now, contextually, that reward here is for the believing Jew during the tribulation period who's been faithful under the reign of Antichrist and who has stayed true to the Lord under that oppressive regime. When the Lord comes at the end of the tribulation period, he brings his reward with him for those who bore his testimony and 
who were willing to put their lives on the line for the sake of Christ. And then on that day, what greater reward might they experience than to become known as worldwide the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. Now far from being internationally ostracized and hated, notice they are sought out. A city not forsaken. Not forsaken by God, nor even forsaken by man. Now men are attracted to the city. You see, the name sought out there doesn't just mean that the Lord came searching for them, which he did. But it indicates that men will seek them out during the kingdom age. The Gentiles will come and seek out the Jews and ask as to the ways of the Lord. Look in Micah chapter 4 for a moment. Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2. Micah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It says, But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and the people shall flow unto it. Go through, go through the gates. And many nations shall come and say, Come. And let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house, the temple of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's what is being presented in verse 12 of 62 of Isaiah. Now, there are some really important lessons for us in this chapter tonight. First of all, we get a better understanding of what it means to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You know, we often hear that prayer request made, as in recent times, when there was conflict between Gaza and Israel. And you'll say, oh, don't forget to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Well, there's no, nothing wrong with praying for the peace of Jerusalem in a temporal setting like that and in a circumstance like that. But actually, praying for the peace of Jerusalem is far greater a prayer request than simply praying for a moment of peace in this current point of history. What we're really praying for is we're praying for the Prince of Peace to come. We're praying that he will reign and he will have a kingdom of peace in the end. We're really praying according to God's will. We're praying that God will honor his word to Israel, that Israel will be a light to the world, ultimately, as God intended, and that her testimony will shine from Jerusalem to the four corners of the earth, and that Jerusalem will truly be a holy city. Really, when you say pray for the peace of Jerusalem, what you're saying is pray, even so, come, Lord Jesus. That's what you're praying. You're praying for the coming of the Lord. We're praying in keeping with God's will, in keeping with God's word, in keeping with his promises. But I wonder, is there not a broader lesson here also? Because when we pray, do our prayers call upon the Lord to be faithful to his promises to us? Because God has made us promises. He's made you and I promises. 
as the church of Christ. We are the recipients of great and many promises. To ever come before his throne and say, well, Lord, you have said this, and I'm asking you for it. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, you're encouraged to do that, to pray scripture. Not just pray a shopping list of requests, but to pray on the premise of God's promises. You know, not because he's liable to forget those promises, but because we are. And as you pray that way, as you pray through the promises of God, you're reminded of his truth. You're reminded of his faithfulness. You're reminded of his constancy. And your confidence before his throne will rise. And you will be praying according to his will. May God bless these thoughts to our hearts this evening. Lord willing, we'll pick up next week in chapter 63.